Together, Farah and Rizan return to their friends so that they may face the queens of the human realm with the Veritas. But despite their best efforts to convince the queens of Rhys's goodness, the secret of Valaris is not enough to win them over. Or so it seems. When the Golden Queen betrays her sisters and delivers the second half of the Book of Breathings to the Inner Circle, dire consequences loom on the horizon. The views expressed by the hosts are entirely their own and in no way represent the thoughts or intentions of the original author. This podcast is a discussion, shared spark thought and conversation on the characters and themes of this novel. Though the hosts speak mostly within the constraints of this book, series spoilers may be discussed with or without warning. Explicit language, as well as themes of sex, violence, abuse, self-harm, and depression will reoccur throughout this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Book Talk for Book Talk, a podcast where we deep dive into the writing of your favorite novels. This season, we are exploring Sarah J. Mass's most beloved novel in the Court of Thorns and Roses series. This is Jack. And I'm Amy. This week, we're discussing chapters 56 through 60 in A Court of Mist and Fury. The question we're asking this week is, why does Feyre's greatest show of strength happen in this section? And what does that tell us about what's to come? Themes that we're going to see this episode include violence and love. Chapter 56 has Farah and Reese winnowing from the solitude of the mountain retreat back to the Illyrian camp. And the Illyrian warriors are flying off with the women and children because Cassian starts goading Reese like the prick he is. But, you know, we love this prick. Although Reese tries to hold it together, he seeks out healing through release. The first release is from his fight with Cassian. Reese and Cassian both know what Cassian is doing, and they both know that Cassian is physically stronger and more likely to win in a fight. It's a good callback to earlier in the book when Reese easily admits that Cassian could win in a fist fight without powers. There's something about the description, quote, hard ride, Cassian tied his dark hair with a worn strap of leather. There's nothing to provide in that quote other than it's hot. And we just had to say it's hot. There's something about like with a leather strap. And he's tying his hair back as he's goading Reese. Mm. I imagine him shirtless and in leather pants. Okay. And... Yeah, me too now. <laughs> that wasn't your first thought? Bunny slippers. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> it's early. After fighting, Reese still needs to seek more release, this time with Farah. And rather than the chapter before where having Farah bent over was too similar to Amarantha, here in his animal-like state, Reese ends up finding healing through this position and through sex and orgasms. So good for everyone here. Get it. As I'm like sitting here bitter, I'm like, hope you're happy. <laughs> yeah, I, could, I just felt the bitterness. <laughs> just like, wow, Reese, I hope you're freaking enjoying that. <laughs> just Farah. Like, I think like the quote is like, he had me moaning his, na- his name loud enough that the Illyrians flying around the camp could hear me. Yeah. Which, that must be nice. No one moans someone's name during sex. I, yeah. I mean, I've never You've met. never. I tried once. Was it weird? Yeah, because then he said my name back. And oh. I don't have a sexy name. <laughs> I was just playing it out in my head. I just stop. Drawling. And the only reason why I said his name was because I was like young. And mm. I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. No, that's not. It was weird. I hope my mom doesn't hear this. I wonder if I'll edit this out. She never listens. <laughs> so we're this is staying in. <laughs> yeah. We've said a lot of worse things. <laughs> that's true. Sorry, Mama. While the two males fight, Moore beckons to Feyre, telling her that the boys will be at it for a while. Here we see Moore, quote, leaning against the threshold of the house. She held the door open. Welcome to the family, Feyre. This threshold, which Feyre steps through, symbolizes Feyre's departing that limbo she's been in, no longer a member of the Spring Court, but still unsure of where she belongs, to now being not only a member of the Inner Court, but Reese's mate and soon-to-be High Lady. And it's the threshold to Reese and Cassian and Asriel's childhood home. That's where they all became brothers while Reese's mom took care of them, and that's where Feyre becomes family, too. Ah! My heart. I know, right? And these big family moments all happen within a cabin. Do you notice that? Yeah, that's true. Like, you know, Farrah's little hovel. Yeah. They made it in a cabin. Yeah. And now this place. It's cute. It's great. I don't frequent cabins, so. I love cabins. They're cozy. I don't like the smell. Oh, I love the smell of old wood. Maybe I can try better. I can try. 
I can try harder. <laughs> if this is what if this is what a cabin gets me. <laughs> a mate. <laughs> Feyre thinks in response, quote, And I thought those might have been the most beautiful words I'd ever heard. A nice parallel to Reese being the most beautiful man she's ever seen. The group returned to Valoris, or as Feyre remarks, quote, home. The other members of the inner circle, who Feyre realizes are now her family, vow to serve and protect her. This is such an important moment for Feyre. Why? Because never once did her family of flesh and blood offer to protect her. She was the only one doing the hunting and, in theory, protecting their livelihood. But Tamlin protected her, didn't he? That wasn't what Feyre wanted from Tamlin, because she had protected him first when she broke the curse. She wanted to be his equal. Instead, he shut her away. This note of she wanted to be his equal? Bookmark that for next week's episode. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Or bookmark that for when we record tomorrow, Amy. (laughs) I'll try to remember. Everyone else has to wait a whole week. (laughs) You, less than 24 hours. Now here, Feyre is an equal, and for the first time in Feyre's life, she's had something to lose. And I guess you felt, was you not waiting for me? No, I have have a note that I can't read. (laughs) I thought you were waiting for me to sing Taylor Swift. No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have my glasses on. All I see is you staring. Now here, Feyre is an equal, and the first time in Feyre's life, she is also protected by those who are her equals, and she's allowed to protect them just as much. I have a slightly different perspective here. I feel like this scene shows how Farah, like Reese, is not equal to the group. Quote, But I would rather you were my friends before serving and protecting me. Moore said with a wink, We are, but we will serve and protect. Farah will no longer ever be equal to this group. And rather than the spring court, she accepts it here because she's willing to serve and protect her friends as well. It's as much of a two-way street as it possibly can be. But Farah was never meant to be someone who was equal to others. She wasn't equal to her sisters. She wasn't equal to Tamlin and his court. And she's not equal here. But she tries. Side note, I always find this scene to be super cringy because they all stand up as one, vow to serve and protect Farah. And I just, I'm not saying that the writing is cringy. I'm saying that I'm an incapable human being who can't have people do something nice to me, apparently. I don't know. Yeah, well, we were prepping. We talked about this. And I was like, wouldn't you want everyone in a room to stand up and be like, you're the most beautiful woman we've ever seen? Yeah, but we call that a Tuesday. <laughs> Just a regular Tuesday in my life. No. Okay. Uh, as I'm reading this, I was like, damn it. I was supposed to convince my roommates to do this for when you walked in and I yeah. forgot. Yeah. Oh, I forgot too. I forgot. <laughs> Another day. Another day. At one point during dinner, Amron congratulates Farah on her efforts to save Reese. Quote, I heard you grew fangs in the forest and killed some highborn beasts. Good for you, girl. That was such a great Amarin accent. Thanks. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's actually not my normal Amarin accent. No, because you're listening to the book. Right. It's the book Amarin. It's the book Amarin. Not graphic audio in Amarin, but... Should I try my Amarin? Oh, yeah. Quote, I heard you grew fangs in the forest and killed some highborn beasts. Good for you, girl. <laughs> Oh, chills. Oh, that was good. That was good. Everyone, let's give Amy a clap. Why, thank you. Everyone's being compared to animals once again, but at least Feyre is being complimented by Amran, the powerful female she always tries to channel. I love this because why tell someone they grew something as sensitive as balls? No, she grew fangs. I'm going to start saying that to people now. Oh. Grow some fangs. Grow some fangs. <laughs> I don't know why I said it that way. I did too, though. Why did we both fail? Because we're from the valley. We're not from the valley. We're people who happen to live within the premise that may be considered the valley. We happen to be in the valley at this very moment. Yeah. Yeah. Put me on blast. (laughs) (laughs) They don't know where we record. Yeah, they do. Yeah, we do. (laughs) No, we just admit I live in the valley. Now people, someone's going to triangulate where I live. Admit it. You want that. I know. <laughs> you want someone to run into you as I else. walk around with our merch all the time. <laughs> I live in it half the week. I do love that it's the women, including more, bolstering Feyre and putting down Reese. The men don't come to their High Lord's defense at all either. Love that. I want to highlight a moment at the end of this chapter that shows how far Feyre's come. Quote: I held out my own glass for more to fill. Before, Moore was the one who would serve Farah wine without asking if Farah even wanted anything. And now Farah isn't just asking for wine, but she's making Moore serve her wine. Uh, 
I wasn't going to call her like a boss bitch because like, I don't know. I feel like we should just call like women bosses too. But like, badass move. Well, now she's high lady. So damn right she is going to make more poor wine for her. She's not high lady yet. Oh, damn. That's right. Mm-hmm. She's Reese's mate. Yeah. J- just imagine the shit she's going to pull when she's high lady. Pour this wine with your mouth. <laughs> like grab the <laughs> bottleneck with your mouth and then tip it with your head. I, I know that's the image you meant to call up, but in my head it was more baby birding. Baby birdinger. <laughs> Would you like more wine, my highly? <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when we record the latest at night we've ever recorded. Yeah. Chapter 57 has Feyre, Reese, and the inner circle, Sans Amarin, back in the human lands, there to face the queens of the human realm, or at least the two that bother to show up. Farah and Rhysan are now finally a true united front. They are both wearing crowns. They are holding hands. They are one. This is in stark contrast to the fact that not all of the queens are there. We're building up Farah and Rhys being the stronger pair, which means that the attack later is only going to hurt more. I want to point out this quote. But now Rhys and I stood hand in hand, unflinching, a song without end or beginning. This just makes me think of your reincarnation theory, Amy. And I think this reference, the idea of a song without end or beginning and the fact that it's mentioned twice means that there's some kind of foreshadowing in future books, without a doubt, I say. I also believe the Lion Queen is giving a lot of subtle clues on which side she's on. First, the Queen calls Farrah Cursebreaker, which is a fairy title. It was a fairy curse, not affecting humans. So with Farrah being a Cursebreaker, it has nothing to do with the Lion Queen and what she's concerned about. Then the Lion Queen starts to provoke, claiming that Farah is no better than the children of the blessed, and this is more aggressive than she's been with them. I think the Lion Queen is trying to get in and get out without Reese and company having to sacrifice anything. Then the Lion Queen says, quote, Such a pity, so unfair that you, Cursebreaker, received what all those fools no doubt begged for, immortality, eternal youth. This is the Lion Queen warning them that the other queens are focused on these things, youth and immortality. So subtle. But, ugh, if I could be in a room with her. Farah or the Lion Queen? Lion Queen. Just in general or in this scene? Hmm. Excellent question. Mm -hmm. Both? I mean, she's supposedly hot. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't I want to be in a room with her? Hey, Lion Queen. When Moore pulls out the Veritas, it is compared to an apple. And I imagine that in some ways, this is akin to the fruit of the tree of knowledge that Eve ate in the Bible. Quote, the Veritas was no larger than a ripe apple and fit within her, Moore's, cupped palms as if her entire body, her entire being had been molded for it. Moore speaks in a voice that is both young and old. Her power is truth. There is so little we know about her. What if her bloodline is the tree that bears the fruit? Where does that mean Moore's family truly stem from? Dot, dot, dot. I wrote, I have thoughts, but I don't. I just want to know more. I There's so much that's left unsaid, but in Sarah J. Mass's event thing that she did recently, her Zoom call, I don't know, but she basically said that she likes to leave room open in books because she knows she wants to fill it out later. Mm. It's like, I, I see what you're doing here with Moore. I have a theory that maybe Moore's family comes from the mother because mm-hmm. Eve is the mother of all living. Mm. And if Moore resembles Eve, mm-hmm. then her family maybe stems from the mother. Also, a lot of apples in this book. Feyre's tits to be one of them. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> there are so many animal references in this section that I'm not going to even bother with them. Instead, I'm going to talk about Nesta. A lot of people hate Nesta, but I really admire her in this scene. She tells the queens, quote, This is the talk of madwomen, of arrogant, stupid fools. There are innocent people here in these lands. If you will not risk your necks against the force that threatens us, then grant those people a fighting chance. Give my sister the book. Nesta hates fairies and hates the threat of their association since it will put hers and her sister's futures at risk. But she is still willing to do what she thinks is the right thing is still willing to stand up to the queens because it is the right thing to look out for others. Nesta is a deeply flawed character, but we can see here that she is trying to be good, even if she does not necessarily know how. This is also prep work for the next chapter, when Farrah tells Cassian that Nesta's problem is that she feels too much. That Archeron pride that we've seen in Farrah since the beginning of the book, and that we've seen in Nesta, still holds true, 
And yet, quote, Nesta's throat bobbed. Please. I don't think I'd ever heard that word from her mouth. Please, don't leave us to face this alone. Unfortunately, just as Feyre used the word please with the queens and it failed during her last visit, so too does Nesta's use of the word fail. Okay, hear me out. Farah begged and asked someone, anyone, to help her stop marrying Tamlin. And that's when Rhys showed up. Same thing here. Nesta is begging the queens. Her cries are going unanswered. And who shows up? Cassian. 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 <laughs> I love that parallel, though, that you called out. Thank you. I thought so. It was just kind of like, you know, both men showed up with their unanswered calls for help, which turned into answered calls. Not a missed call. An answered call. Nesta can't come to the phone right now. You want to know why? Because she's going to be dead, actually. <laughs> or. Yeah, it's true. She's not dead yet. Human Nesta's about to die. I think this is the moment Cassian falls for Nesta. What a beautiful way to start setting up their future journey together. Yeah, it's definitely the one he falls for her because he wipes away her tear. Now, if he licks her tears, then it would be two on the nose, like with Reese and Farah. But we know that a good tear wipe here in the Akatar world is basically foreplay for love. I like to imagine that he discreetly pocketed the tear in a little bottle <laughs> and then drank it later. <laughs> like one of those little mini hot sauces. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he just sprinkles it on his food. <laughs> <laughs> what are you eating, Nesta's tears? <laughs> They're such a rare delicacy. <laughs> When the group realizes that the Golden Queen left behind the second half of the Book of Breathings, the book calls out to Farah, quote, Hello, sweet thing. Hello, Lady of Night, Princess of Decay. Hello, fanged beast and trembling fawn. Let's talk about these names that the book calls Farah. Lady of Night is obvious. She will be High Lady of the Night Court. Princess of Decay. Well, Farah was once betrothed to Tamlin of the Spring Court, and she will help destroy it from the inside out like the decay of plants and food. Fanged beast might represent the fey side of Feyre. Did Amory not just say Feyre grew fangs? And then trembling fawn. Feyre, the human she once was, was always compared to a doe. What the book is saying with these titles is acknowledging the contrasting sides of Feyre, the past and the present that has made her who she is now. I love these titles and I want to mess around with the concept of these titles and potentially look at different people that they might be describing. So let's go through them again. Sweet Thing, or as we said earlier while rehearsing, Sweet Thang, Lady of the Night, Princess of Decay, Fang Beast, Trembling Fawn. I think these are who will be affected by the cauldron the most. Farah, Nesta, Elaine, Reese, and Cassian. Sweet Thing, Reese, Lady of the Night, Farah, Princess of Decay, Nesta, Fanged Beast Cassian, and Trembling Fawn Elaine. I'm not saying I have these right. And honestly, even as I'm reading through these, I kind of want to like, no, Reese is the Fanged Beast and Cassian's a sweet thing. But ultimately, Princess of Decay, I, to me, that screams Nesta because, you know, she like tears shit down. But Trembling Fawn, that to me screams a little bit more Elaine since recently Farah's title of Doe has been passed on more to Elaine. It's fair. We don't know. No, we do not know. And I don't know if Sarah knows. Fair. I want to point out that Farah observes, quote, the tea she or Elaine had prepared, the finest, most exotic tea money could buy, sat undisturbed on the table. This instantly reminds me of the Court of Nightmares. When Farah and Reese visit, she observes that there's a bunch of food that the courtiers don't touch. And it's a display of power on the queen's part that they don't even bother to touch the most expensive tea that money can buy. It's just rude. It is. I want to drink the tea. You and I have been to Harrods in London. That's some expensive tea. It was so good. It was the best tea. I mean, just not drinking good tea is honestly just it shows what kind of woman she is. And I don't respect that kind of woman. It's, it's It should be a crime. A proper good cup of tea should always be consumed. You never say no to tea. You never say no to tea because it comes with little sandwiches. <laughs> I was just thinking about the milk and sugar. Oh, I'll take it all. <laughs> I cannot leave this for the breadcrumbs and absolutely must talk about it here. Elaine was called a doe the first visit to the human realms in Mist and Fury. Here she's called a doe again. When asked if she wanted to go to Prithian or remain in the human territory, quote, Elaine swallowed, a doe caught in a snare. 
I wonder if this is the moment that TikTok determined Elaine's character. But though Pharaoh was once compared to a doe, Pharaoh was never made out by the rest of us to be incapable of helping herself. Yeah, that's really messed up. It's yeah. Like it's it's just like when you think about it, it's super messed up that we they use the exact Sorry, I know you're in the middle of your thing, but it made me mad. Mad. Cuz Sarah's using the same descriptions that she did with Farah, no one bad an eye than they do with Elaine. Want to know why? Because Farah had more of a masculine patriarchal role, yep. while Elaine is the embodiment of a female feminine. Yep. Gender stereotypes, of course, not personal feelings. So that being said, I don't think Elaine is that much different from Feyre, even if she doesn't necessarily match the patriarchal role in this family. I think Elaine has spent her life trying to keep the peace. Why else would she care for their father when Feyre and Nesta detested him for doing nothing? Also, I've been listening to Wing and Ruin, and I still feel this way. <laughs> yeah, I think it's only going to like double up. Like, I think we're going to double down yeah. on this. of yeah. just like, wow. I already feel like defensive, like, wow, TikTok, I can't believe you did this, but I'm one of them. Like, I totally. You totally fell into the trap. Oh, 100%. In this moment, Elaine probably does not know what is the right choice to make. And she's used to trying to pacify those around her. Because note that Elaine doesn't say, I can't go to Prithian. She just says, I can't. This could have been, I can't be the one to choose. Or maybe, as we discussed before, it could be that Elaine can't go because her marriage is meant to secure the family's future. Just, you know, food for thought. It's the people surrounding Elaine thinking that they know her thoughts when they make this decision for her. Granted, Reese is the one who nods as if confirming something for Elaine. I wonder what he heard in her mind. Because I agree, after you and I talked about this, I don't think she was going to say she can't go, necessarily. Maybe she's thinking, I can't make Nesta leave. Additionally, later on, we're going to see that Reese respects Elaine more, way more than Nesta, but he in general respects her. And I wonder what he heard in her mind in this moment. I think that's a really important point to make because when Reese first met Elaine and Nesta, their first visit to the human realm, he told Favorite afterwards that he didn't think he could ever look at both sisters straight. And yet we never see him get mad at Elaine the way he gets mad at Nesta. Yeah, he does hold Nesta more in contempt earlier. And I know Farrah does call him out at one point, whether it's in this book or in another book. Maybe it's in Silver Flames. But Reese says something along the lines of like, well, it's Elaine, like as if like that explains it. Mm -hmm. And again, I think we are left to assume like, oh, it's because it's sweet, soft, innocent Elaine. When again, I think he might have heard some tougher thoughts than we give her credit for. Yeah, I think so, too. Nesta in this moment shows her discerning side that only comes out now and then. She says to Farrah, quote, that was why you painted stars on your drawer. I love this because it means Nesta was aware enough of Feyre to wonder. There isn't disgust or disapproval here, just observation. It feels like Nesta and Reese maybe could have learned to get along if things wouldn't go south later. Spoiler for Silver Flames. Skip ahead a little bit. And maybe this kind of opens the door for her realizing that she could be mates with Cassian. I definitely don't think that she's thinking this right now at this moment, but who would imagine that a former human could become mates with a high lord? Well, the same people who might imagine that a former human could become mates with a general. Yeah. That people, Sarah J. Mass. I was going to say the mother. She is the mother. I was going to say she is the mother. She is the mother. <laughs> the mother of all writers. <laughs> Feyre and company leave the human realm immediately and deliver the second half of the Book of Breathings to Amarin at the start of Chapter 58. As the group waits and waits some more, Feyre ponders the inevitable battle that will come, a breadcrumb we see early in the chapter that's ironically realized quickly are Feyre's thoughts about the Golden Queen. Quote, It was of them, the queens, I most frequently thought, of the two-faced, golden-eyed queen, with not just a lion's coloring, but a lion's heart, too. I hoped I saw her again. Yikes, <laughs> is all I can say. <laughs> I think this thought makes the reality of what happens next, and when Feyre sees the Golden Queen die, all the more tragic. Also, I love that she uses contrasts here to describe the Golden Queen. Two-Faced is normally associated with negative things and is the complete opposite of what you associate with a lion's heart. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, she's Beautiful. brought in something that's negative but positive, but... Which is how Feyre's been described this entire book. Completely. Nothing that Ferris says ages well in no. this book. Like, Ferris is the one who's just like, wow, you know who my favorite planet is? Pluto. <laughs> 
Wow, I'm so happy that we've been able to travel a lot lately. I hope a pandemic doesn't shut us all down. <laughs> like, but I just imagine Sarah J. Mass like writing that line out and then laughing to herself. Oh, yeah. She thought she was real funny. Oh, yeah. Very funny. <laughs> like, I can see her smiling. Yep, yep. One of my favorite moments between Feyre and Cassian is that they go to watch a symphony during all this downtime. Feyre describes the music as, quote, lovely, strange, but lovely, written at a time Cassian had told me when humans had not even walked the earth. He found the music puzzling, off-kilter, but I'd been entranced. I would like to suggest this is a breadcrumb that furthers my theory from last week that Feyre and Reese are reincarnated beings. I am going to agree with this, and I'm going to back it up some more. Spoiler for all Silver Flames, Crescent City, universe, skip ahead a little bit. We think Reese and Farah are starborn, and that Nesta and Elaine must be starborn too, since, you know, siblings. We know how Nesta is with music, her affinity with it, and wonder if that's maybe a starborn thing, which would then prove why she's starborn and not Cassian, because Reese likes music, Nesta likes music, Farah likes music, not Cassian. I don't know. I don't know if I'm reaching here, but, you know, I got to stretch somehow, and it's reaching here. I have a breadcrumb from Wings and Ruin, but I can't bring it up because we're not there yet. (gasps) Wings and Ruin, season three, coming out 2023. To stay a moment longer here with Farah and Cassian, Farah is setting up Nesta like the good wing woman sister she is, and she's laying the groundwork here. She's basically telling Cassian, hey, sorry, my sister's a bitch, but I promise she's worth it, which is the most sister-like move. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> is. Like, I know she can be infuriating. She drives me crazy, too. But like, she's got a really big heart and a great ass. <laughs> so if you can just look into one of those. She has the potential for a great ass. You just need a trainer. Oh, yeah. Right. Like her ass will go even greater from here, buddy, sir. <laughs> but like just like that entire back and forth is all of Silver Flames prep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There is so much Silver Flames prep in this book. But from what I also got from the Sarah J. Mass event thingy was that she was writing Silver Flames basically as she was writing Wing and Ruin because she wanted to know how Wing and Ruin was going to end. Mm, I love it. Like She was like, where are these characters going to go out? So it just it makes sense where it's like you don't want to finish something. Yeah. Well, also, which makes sense why Frost and Starlight does such a good job setting up Silver Flames. Oh, yeah, completely. So if you imagine like here, she already has Wing and Ruin in her head. Mm -hmm. So this is like the pre-pre-ground work. Mm -hmm. It's good stuff. As Favor crosses the Sidra, she, quote, feels the threads of the current far below, the strains of salt and fresh water twining together. This reminds me of something we discussed in episode eight about a quote from chapter 29 that reads, quote, the lifeblood of Valaris thrummed through me, and in rare moments of quiet, I could have sworn I heard the clash of the sea clawing at distant cliffs. I think that quote from chapter 29 is reflected here, and at the same time was foreshadowing Feyre's connection and ability to manipulate water. We see it here again, a reminder and a foreshadowing of how she will control the water of the Sidra during the upcoming battle. Just before the Adder and Hybern's forces appear, Feyre senses a shift in the water and calls the shift, quote, like ink dropped in water. In some ways, this harkens back to chapter 5, when Feyre mixed milk with her tea. We talked about that being a metaphor and foreshadowing Feyre's eventual finding balance between her dark and light sides, her good and bad, what she feels is expected of her and what she actually is. However, this image is the opposite of that. Water is clear, like Feyre's current state of mind, like her peace, like Valaris. The ink, or Hyburn, will muddy it, ruin that clarity. We see this replicated in the sky on the following page. Quote, The sky was cloudless, the streets full of chatter and life, and there on the horizon, a smear of black. Before Cassian leaves and tells Farah to go back to the townhouse, he gives her blades. Quote, but an Illyrian blade had appeared in Cassian's hand, twin to the one across his back, a fighting knife now shown in the other. He held them both out to me. This is mimicking when Lucian gave Farah her blade in Thorns and Roses. Back in book one, Lucian gave Farah a jewel blade as an apology for potentially letting her die, slash didn't really come to save her as fast as he promised he would when she was being attacked by the Naga. 
It wasn't a weapon meant to hurt or to help her. It was given without training or without care, and it was given as an apology, and I will even say it, a half-hearted apology. Now we have Cassian, who arms Farah, not just gifts her, with Illyrian blades, weapons made to actually kill. Plus, he's been training her, helping her to learn how to protect herself and give her strength because knowledge is power in this actual sense, like literal power. She's getting strength with this knowledge. Lucian could never. Couldn't handle it. Not at all. And then the invasion begins. And with the Adder and the other fairies serving Hibern comes the body of the Golden Queen. There's so much I want to say about the treatment of the queen. First, it could just be SJM playing up the shock factor, but let's work through the descriptions. The queen's body is skewered on a lamppost, her, quote, gaping mouth opening and closing like a fish on land. She is no different than the fish Feyre ate while at the summer court, fried on a stick. If that weren't enough, her golden hair is, quote, shorn to the skull, her golden eyes plucked out. Hair is often a symbol of power, Think of Samson and Delilah from the Bible. Samson's power resided in his hair, and his power was lost when he allowed Delilah to cut it. The Golden Queen was also equated to a lion previously. Think about how a lion would look if you shaved its mane. It's shameful. Actually, I feel like I've seen stories about lions who lose their manes dying out of shame. I've definitely seen TikToks of shaved cats. And I understand that. <laughs> Wait, but has there really been stories of like lions who with their shaved manes, they die? I don't know. Maybe I'm making it up. Because remember, like, are we talking like the ones who have manes are male lions and then they die. Right. And then so it makes sense to me, you know? Yeah. Like, they just couldn't handle it. Yeah. I mean, that's maybe I'm making it up, but I feel like that's real. It's a very dramatic male thing. <laughs> I'm going to go with it. But why go so far as to plug out the eyes as well? You talk a lot about biblical references with Samson and Delilah, and I think that it goes even more biblical with the eyes. You know, you have the whole eye for an eye. And then at one point, I think it's in Matthew or something, but it also says that your eye should be plucked out for your sin. There's a lot of eye references, too, in the Bible. Yeah, the eye for an eye thing is a Mosaic law thing from the Old Testament, which totally makes sense here. Or as I said during prep, two eyes for a book. <laughs> two eyes for a book. <laughs> how many? Okay, so if it's an eye for an eye and two eyes equal one book, how big is the book? Are we talking about silver flames or are we talking about like frost and starlight? Frost and starlight. Wow, it's expensive. So what if I took silver flames from you? What would you give me? Your eyes, your hair, and your Literally, fingers? that's all I have going for me. And my what? <laughs> I said fingers. And my what? I heard something else. <laughs> what do you think I say? I don't know. Because I accidentally pinched myself earlier. I thought <laughs> that's what you were talking about. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want those. You can keep them. <laughs> You'll never know what we talked about, what I pinched. Lastly, though this is Feyre's first description, quote, The Golden Queen's back arched on the impact as if she were in the throes of passion. After having just gone through this cleansing with regard to sex, where it was healing for Feyre and Reese, sex has again been defiled and made gruesome. It is as if the Queen has been accused of what those villagers said of the children of the blessed in Chapter 3 of Thorns and Roses, fairy-loving whore. It's crazy because they're definitely accusing the golden-haired queen to be a fairy-loving whore because she helped out the fairies and everything. But this book has had some great moments of incorporating oddly sensual moments with violence. If you think back to the dream Farrah had with Amarantha mm -hmm. and her dream, Amarantha was like touching her breasts with a knife and it just kind of warps it in a way that I know. I know when we were talking about the Hewn City, I really complained a lot about like saying that I don't like when sex is used for a negative description. I don't think that's what's being done here. It is being defiled, but in a good artistic way. Yeah, no, I mean, when we talked about the Hewn City, what we were annoyed with was the fact that sex was being equated to evil. Yeah, like, oh, this place is dirty because they're grinding on each other and they're bad. No. <laughs> right. Whereas this is taking something very intimate and passionate and making it very warped and gruesome. Because it is an intimate death. Like, I mean, it's someone's death. You, you know, it's intimate to the one who's dying. Like, that's as intimate as it's going to get for them. But 
there is something about a final death scene that when you're mixing life, when you're so alive, when you're in the throes of passion with death. Yeah. And that is like a great artistic way of using these two contradictory things of passion and death. And it's beautiful, but also jarring. Yeah. And I love it. And yeah, I just wanted to explain, like, this is why this is different than other moments when we call out sex and how we don't, how I don't really like when it's used in that regard. But not now. This is good. Uh, Throws in passion while impaled is great. (laughs) This is the good kind of sex. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to call out, as Farah observes the massacre, she thinks, quote, it was an extermination. And in this moment, she's comparing the people of Valoris to insects or pests, which is not necessarily how she views them, but how she thinks they are being treated by Highburn. Yep. And it's a very sad moment. It is. If you recall from our breadcrumbs in chapter 41 or episode 10, we called out Feyre for thinking, quote, it'd be stupid to venture into the quarter or rainbow of Valoris anyway, when it might very well be ruined in any upcoming conflict. It'd be stupid to fall in love with it when it might be torn from me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> sure. Not convinced. Well, I mean, it's just like, oh, my God, of course, you're going to end up falling in love with it and protect it. And, oh, of course, you're using the same logic that Reese used on you and all this stuff. Right. I mean, it's not bad writing. We've just been analyzing this for a really long time. We have. We hadn't even talked about it then. You're like, oh, she's using the same logic that Reese used against her. Ugh, we didn't even discuss that, but. As you're reading out loud, I can hear it. Yeah, it's true, though. Not mad at it. It's all great. Yeah. Just fair jinx as shit. She does. She curses herself and she's cursed the rainbow. And we see that play out now. You can kiss the rainbow or you can curse the rainbow. She cursed. Come on. We all know we like Skittles. Kiss the rainbow. This episode's been brought to you by. (laughs) (laughs) No, it hasn't. (laughs) Don't get us in trouble. (laughs) When the Highburn soldiers begin to attack the rainbow and there's no one to help them, Feyre now thinks, quote, This was my home. These were my people. If I died defending them, defending that small place in the world where art thrived, then so be it. If we remember, Cassian also had a very similar sentiment with Nesta when he said that he would be there to protect the humans. Look, I love art. Obviously, we're doing a whole podcast surrounding art. I don't think that's the hill you die on. (laughs) No? No. She's like, if I die defending this pottery, this painting, choose a different battle. It's not the painting. Meanwhile, the children's hospital over there is like falling apart and Farrah's like, I must protect the rainbow. <laughs> it's about the people who live on the rainbow. They can run. <laughs> you know who can't run? Wow, you have no sympathy. You know who can't run? The children's hospital. The fairy children's <laughs> hospital that Farrah's let crumbling, falling apart because she's got to save a few painters. <laughs> I like to think Amran's saving the children's hospital and the children are coming up to her and like, save us. And she's like, get off of me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Swear to God, if you touch me, child, (laughs) I will murder you. I will have you hallucinate (laughs) and throw yourself to the ground. Note that Feyre's determination to protect the rainbow and die doing so is all without her ever having stepped foot on the rainbow before now. I have a question for you. Sure. Who's protecting the che- the sexy chicken lingerie store? <laughs> I like to think it's on the rainbow. I do, too. <laughs> I definitely think that that's the reason, the sole reason why she's there. She's like, I'm the chicken. <laughs> do your sexy chicken lingerie store. I'll defend you. Not related to the uh, sexy, sexy chicken, chicken lingerie, lingerie shop. <laughs> Farah fell in love with the rainbow without being there because it is a place her human past might have loved and thrived in. Vera is already attached to it, even more so now that her heart is healed and capable of painting. And that is what prompts the most badass fight scene from Vera. So much of what we've discussed this season now comes to fruition. Vera uses her power to control the Sidra, and from it, she forms wolves. Quote, My wolves were faster than the hybrid soldiers. I was faster as I ran with them in the heart of the pack. Vera is the wolf without having to tell herself she's one without having to convince us that she's one. She has finally embodied the ultimate predator she once tried to be at the Weaver's Cottage. I'm not trying to criticize Fair or anything like that, but I would like some firewolves next time as well. I mean, like, she has affinity to water because that's, like, what she learned to master first, but firewolves in the future is what I hope for. Farah has gone from being the animal to owning and controlling the animal. 
These wolves are from inside her. They're her power. And now she's letting the animals out, literally, or rather, the dogs out. Who let the dogs out? Ooh. <laughs> this has now gone too far. <laughs> I mean, we really aged ourselves. No, we were like barely born. Okay. <laughs> Why does Feyre go after the adder when it was not safe to do so when she could have died? I think it's the moment that Feyre compares the Golden Queen to Claire Butter. There is no other choice for Feyre the second she makes that comparison. Claire was the reason Feyre went back to the Spring Court in Thorns and Roses. Claire still haunted Feyre at the start of Mist and Fury, and though Claire's memory has faded during the course of this novel, the scar her death left on Feyre is not gone and maybe never will be. Remember, we also learned in the cabin scene that Reese holds Claire's death to his heart as well. He feels guilty and struggles with that pain. This is a piece that Reese and Feyre both get. It's vengeance for Claire. And you know what they say, the couple that gets vengeance together stays together. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the sister to the couple that kills together stays together. They go hand in hand, really. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. If you thought we were done with free falling in this novel, then you forgot this moment of free falling with the adder in chapter 59. The free fall when Reese was shot was important for his relationship with Feyre. The free fall with the adder is important for Feyre's growth as an individual. It also harkens back to a few different moments in the series worth mentioning. Feyre stabs the adder's wings with bloodbane-coated ash arrows, just as Reese's wings had been pierced with those same arrows, which is what ultimately puts Feyre and the adder into a freefall. Feyre uses all her magical abilities to make sure that the adder can't heal or break free. Feyre then proceeds to stab the adder three times, once for the harm done to Reese, once for Claire, and once for herself. The act of stabbing reminds me of so many things. Of course, it mimics Feyre's act of killing the fairies under the mountain. More than that, it is three, just as Feyre had to stab three fairies under the mountain, though Tamlin did not die from the act. It also reminds me of something Jack just mentioned, the sexual dream Feyre had of Amarantha stabbing her ribcage. Note that Feyre leans in, quote, close as a lover to whisper her last words to the adder before it meets its end. Most importantly, this last act, when Feyre stabs the adder for the third time for herself, she, quote, relishes the splintering of bones and flesh. This marks a stark difference from the human Feyre who had to kill the fairies under the mountain. We see a culmination of all of Feyre's experience that has led to this comfort with killing. Although it is arguably for good reason, I don't know that the human Feyre would have been capable of this. This ultimate comfort solidifies not only Feyre's love for Resand, but her love for Valaris, and maybe even herself. Feyre didn't have to kill the adder like this. There were ways to kill him once she winnowed to him, and that didn't have to conclude with plunging to the ground and almost dying with him. It's a far more intimate way to kill, and very hands-on. Something that Feyre has never done. Yes, when she saved Reese, she got her hands dirty, but her goal was to get in and out. This time, she wants to be there to the bitter end with the adder and to see the light fade from his eyes. It's very dark. It's a death that she enjoyed. Why are we so violent now? Because, as we have been saying, Farah is in love. And Farah's comfort with death and violence grows the more she loves Reese. So, really, this horribly violent graphic way of dying is the ultimate love for Reese. It's her mating gift to Reese. <laughs> Yay! So romantic. He's like, thanks, honey. I just wanted the lingerie. <laughs> but sure, I'll take this corpse. The chapter ends with Reese giving Feyre another title, maybe one he means to honor her with. Quote, Feyre Cursebreaker, the Defender of the Rainbow. I'm not sure what Reese hopes to achieve with this title. Maybe it's meant for Feyre to feel like she has her place in the inner circle, her use. I think it's because Reese knows that Feyre has never stepped foot in the rainbow and really wanted to. The rainbow is everything that Feyre loved about and lost of herself. The love for art and beauty, but now she's regained that. She's the defender of the rainbow, both in the literal sense, but also the defender of her own heart. Feels very valiant. And courageous. Like, I am the defender of my own heart. Right? Let's ignore that time I made fun of it and said that it wasn't a good cause. <laughs> Let's just uh, backtrack that. 
Chapter 60 is the aftermath of the Battle of Valaris, as the inner circle regroups to determine what happens next. The first thing I want to say is that the visual of Amran, half asleep and leaning against Azrael, who looks at her in alarm, lives rent-free in my head. Yes, yes. And then the fact that Azrael is kind of worried at her or just keeps looking at her. I just, I need to see this in art. Someone please be creative and draw this or send this clip to someone and have them draw it. I didn't view it as Azrael worried for Amran. I viewed it as him worried about like, why the fuck is she touching me? <laughs> like, am I safe? Is oh, it's like okay? he's not about like the blood stain on his thing, but like, oh God, she's going to hurt me. Yeah, exactly. That might make sense because the way Farrah describes Amran really shows what state Amran's in. Quote, the tiny female's gray clothes hung mostly in strips, her skin beneath pale as snow, which means that she was basically naked next to Asriel. Yeah, all the more reason for him to be like, what the fuck? Oh, yeah. Like, someone. Save me. Move her before she sees that I accidentally glimpsed down and saw her <laughs> boobs. <laughs> I promise you, not the boobs I'm interested in. <laughs> Also, I do want to give a little extra shout out to that line, just the way that SJM wrote it. It's really efficient. It's fast. And we know how Amarin is hanging on by a thread or a strip of clothing. Farah and Reese find themselves on the rooftop, and this is the first time that they are here as mates. This rooftop has already been an important place in their story. By getting into fights there, comforting one another, and now they're there as mates and equals so interesting to think that their first interaction on this roof was Farah saying, don't mess up my hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They've come a long way. And now she's like, mess up my hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When Farah and Reese are alone on the top of the townhouse, Farah tries to comfort Reese. He is emotional at her words. Quote, we deserve each other and we deserve to be happy. And notion, Farah did not believe in the past and when Reese has a hard time accepting even now. Let's go back to the discussion from season one and Farrah discovering the difference between surviving and thriving. For the longest time, Farrah was surviving and not thriving. Shirts coming soon. <laughs> Extra plug. Then Farrah got a taste of what thriving could be, but never experienced it fully. I think it makes sense that Farrah would get to this conclusion before Reese that they both deserve to be happy and thrive together. Oh, yeah. Mm, thrive. The couple that thrives together stays together. Bone. Bone on the roof now. Oh, they will. <laughs> we see once again how sex becomes healing here. Reese seeks comfort in Feyre. And Feyre, the one in power, quote, let him lay me down upon the roof tiles and make love to me under the stars. This is what Reese needed, not Feyre in this moment. And Feyre lets him because she knows that that's what her mate needs to cleanse himself of the guilt he feels by betraying Valoris to the queens. Such a sacrifice on Feyre's part and just, you know, a true duty of taking one for the team. And uh, she really took one. She, oh, she took one and laid down on that roof. And it's such a shame that Azriel didn't slam down on the roof at that exact moment, too. She could have taken two for the team. <laughs> Show me the fanfiction, people. After Asriel and Cassian tell the inner circle the plan to infiltrate Highburn's castle, Reese tells Farah, if you want to go, then you can go. She says, if I hadn't already been in love with him, I might have loved him for that. I realize how badly I've been treated. If my standards had become so low, if the freedom I've been granted felt like a privilege and not an inherent right. I understand reflecting to be like, oh, shit, my standards were that low. But where I wanted to get to this point is that Reese tells Farah that she gets to choose. Quote, you chose yesterday, you choose every day, forever. And we know that this isn't true. Like how Farah didn't choose to get her future wedding ring. We'll get more into that. It seems like Farah had to earn the right to choose. It's very childlike. But I will say that there are certain things in life that you kind of have to earn the right to choose. Choice is an inherent right. Like we all should get the choice. We all should get choice in our life. But there are certain calls 
bigger calls in life that you need to prove that you've earned them. Does that make sense? Am I saying that yeah, right? Does that I you think, get it? I think what you're saying here is that Feyre had to prove that when it came to putting other people at risk, she could make the right judgment call. Yeah. And that's not something that you just get to get out of nowhere. Right. If you think about it from a military standpoint, because this is an operation, right, that Mm -hmm. they're infiltrating the enemy base. You don't just let any soldier make the judgment calls. Yes. It's up to the commander. It's up to Reese to make that call. But Feyre's proven her ability like the rest of them. And therefore, she has the opportunity to choose to participate or sit out because she's capable. Reflecting on this season, one of my biggest critiques of Reese is that he's never really given Farah choices. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if it's all been training to make choices. I certainly think so. And I- yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. All I was going to say, now that I'm like really deep into Wings and Ruin, mm-hmm. I would say yes. I would say this entire book was training for what comes next. Yeah. For Farah to be able to make judgment calls without being told what to do. And I think Farrah gets it. Yeah. And I mean, I think she gets it. She understands it pretty quickly. And I think that, you know, a lot of that goes into her general forgiveness of him. Mm-hmm. We finally get the moment that Reese tells Farrah the truth about his mother's ring. There is a lot worth noting here that shows so much change in Farrah. Farrah doesn't get mad about the lie of omission from Reese. Farrah doesn't react negatively to the prospect of being given jewelry. And Farah says she wants a big party to celebrate their mating. Who is she? Not the Farah we knew. No. These three things alone would never have flown with the Farah who first arrived to the night court. We've spent the season pointing out her growth in these areas, and this is just the cherry on top to show just how much she's changed. Let's move into breadcrumbs. Chapter 57, quote, I will stand on that battlefield again, Nesta Archeron, to protect this house, your people. I can think of no better way to end my existence than to defend those who need it most. And Cassian almost dies. And this makes me worried that he will ultimately die in the end because stupid Elaine said those stupid words for stupid future books. (laughs) Yeah, that's not here. No, no, it wasn't right. Not to show them. Not to reveal the treasure that was Valoris that was my home. For once, Feyre's right, and she's not jinxing everybody. Then, also in 57, quote, My home is your home. Its doors are always open to you. Nesta and Lane will soon be taking Reese up on this offer. Granted, it will be against their will. In chapter 58, Feyre thinks, quote, Even if we nullified the cauldron using the book, even if I was able to stop that cauldron and the king from using it to shatter the wall and the world, he had armies gathered. Perhaps we'd take the fight to him once the cauldron was disabled. That's ironic, given what happens next. Yeah. Also in 58, quote, My father, I remembered, was still trading in the continent, for the mother knew what goods. Another variable in this. And another important variable. A very, very important variable. Yeah, don't diss the father. Don't diss your father. I do it all the time. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Ah. In chapter 60, when Amran explains why they shouldn't put the two books together, she says, quote, The blast of power will be felt in every corner. I should do it in my Amran voice. Mm-hmm. Quote, The blast of power will be felt in every corner and hole in the earth. You won't just attract the king of Highburn. You'll draw enemies far older and more wretched. Things that have long been asleep and should remain so. I'm going to say it. Wait. Uh, nope. Only say it after we say spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. Now say it. I think I'm going to say it. I think this relates to Crescent City and Throne of Glass. Boom. We need the professionals to take care of this. The professionals not being us. Happy Hermit and everyone else on TikTok. There was one other thing I wanted to point out that's not a... I guess it's a breadcrumb. Mm -hmm. And it's this multiverse breadcrumb. But I don't know if it's coincidence or intentional. Mm -hmm. During the Battle of Valoris when Feyre is with her water wolves and she's running through the city... Reminds me of Bryce and all the canines. Oh, yeah. At the end of Crescent City. The yeah. first book. Yeah. That's, that's oh, all I, I got. I can see that. I can't wait for the third Crescent City book. Maybe we'll be invited to an event by the time that comes out. If SJM hasn't put us on a blacklist. I think she might have put us on a blacklist. I think we have evidence at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we do not, guys. We're not starting. We're not starting beef. We're, We're not starting rumors. We love SJM. <laughs> we start rumors about ourselves. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, wow, SJM really hates us. <laughs> she like, she you, will if we start this rumor. Oh, no. Everyone, let's start a new rumor. She loves us. <laughs> so let's go back to the question from the start of the episode. Yep. Why does Feyre's greatest show of strength happen in this section? And what does that tell us about what's to come? I don't want to say we struggled a lot, but we spent a lot of time trying to figure out this section because just like very typical SJM, there's no like climax like there is. It just kind of builds up and then the book ends. Yeah. And you made a really good point that like Farrah doesn't use her strength the same way at the end in Highburn that she does here. Yes, she uses her powers, you know, but it's a lot more mental. She's not like creating water wolves and she's not bringing down all these big bad I definitely think that this is just prep for us to feel confident in her abilities and the fact that she fails so quickly in the next couple chapters. Next week, you're going to hear me kind of make fun of it. Be like, damn, Farrah, like that was a fast fail. But it's also jarring because we just saw such an incredible feat of strength from her. Yeah. And what I love about this section, to me, this is the climax of Farrah's growth as a Mm -hmm. character. She's come so far, and I wouldn't say that she does any more growing in the next section of the book. To your point, I feel like this is setting Feyre up for failure, and she is such a badass here that it's inevitable that she's going to fail because she still has so far to go. I'm going to kind of dip into next week's discussion here, but, you know, we'll figure it out. When we get into Reese's point of view, he says... Farah sacrificed herself because she thought so little of herself that she wasn't worth saving like everyone else. And I thought that was a weird thing because I felt like, well, maybe old Farah, but mm-hmm. I didn't feel like new Farah did. Mm-hmm. And when we think about this battle, she was ready to sacrifice herself so many times, but like in a very graphic, aggressive way that it's not like, you know, she doesn't want to die. She's just more of like, I will take everyone out with me. Mm-hmm. And the same thing for the final episode where Farah does sacrifice herself to go with Tamlin. It's not in a sense of like, I just don't feel like I'm very important. It's kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to burn this whole thing down to the ground now. But to your point, it's character growth. Like we get that climax here. She learned that sacrifice here so that when she does go and make that sacrifice in the next couple chapters, to your point, like she did it. She came to this climax. Yeah, it's it's realistic because we've seen her mentality of, Whatever I can do, I'm going to do, no matter the cost. Yep. But also wanting to survive. You know, like, I think the sacrifice here, even though she keeps calling it a sacrifice and that she'll die with the city, but she doesn't want to die. Like, I'd say this is one of the first times that she's not grappling with the, oh, my God, I think I'm going to die. It was just like, I'm going to I'm going to hurt everyone. And if I die, I die, whatever. But at the same time, I don't want to. But I'm just going to, like, fight my heart out. And I never felt like her sacrifice in the end was also very sacrificey. You know what I mean? It's like she's trying to help. Right. And I think what's important is that it's the complete opposite of the Pharaoh from under the mountain. Yes. Yeah. Because she was ready to free the spring court and die. And she wanted death by that point because the sacrifice was too great. Yep. Whereas now she's like, no sacrifice is enough to protect the people that I love. And she's willing to go that far. But she's also desperate to cling on to life. She wants to go the distance, but also doesn't. It's it's this weird dichotomy. It is. I mean, you know, going back to Under the Mountain and her mentality there, she was very much more of a, like, let's just get this over with. Like, yeah. I'm out. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to deal with this shit. Let's just save everyone and I'm done. Right. Versus now it's like, I'm going to save everyone. And I'm going to rebuild and I'm going to go to my enemies and I'm going to feast on their blood and ash. Different and then book. I'll Sorry. paint with their blood. I'll paint with their blood. Yeah, it's like totally a different level. Mm-hmm. And this is her climax of character development. She'll continue to grow in book three. She'll continue to do other stuff. But it definitely sets her up. The call that she makes is so believable because of this. Yeah, I agree. I can't believe next week's the final episode. No, I can't either. Listener, are you guys ready? Whew, man, I'm not. I mean, you are because your notes are done, but... (laughs) (laughs) Fair. I need to still type the last two pages of mine. Okay. Because my computer died. Oh. I didn't plug it in. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Book Talk for Book Talk. We encourage you to rate and subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. Next week... 
we will be exploring chapter 61 through 69 of A Court of Mist and Fury. We would love to hear your thoughts based on today's conversation. You can submit your comments to our form at booktalkforbooktalk.com for a chance to have your feedback discussed during a weekly mini episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please visit our website, booktalkforbooktalk.com, to view our latest merch and learn about supporting the show through Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Venmo. Or find us on TikTok and Instagram at the handle booktalkforbooktalk. Bye! Bye.